The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And I'm honored today to welcome back my guest from last week, Ms. Teresa Martin. She is a fellow registered dietitian. She's based in Bend, Oregon, and has over 28 years of experience in the field of nutrition, including clinical nutrition, community nutrition, diabetes research, and over the last 15 years, Ms. Martin has specialized in the field of diabetes as a certified diabetes educator. She also was recently recognized by the American Association of Diabetes Educators for her work when she received the Diabetes Educator of the Year Award in 2017. She has provided multiple lectures most recently on the topic of the microbiome and its specific role in the development of chronic disease prevention. I heard her speak most recently in Washington, D.C. at the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting, and I was so impressed with her understanding of the microbiome and your ability, Teresa, to make it so understandable with great action steps. So welcome back. Yeah, thanks for having me back. It's an honor. Well, last week, you did a great job in defining the microbiome versus the microbiota. You spoke about the importance of fiber and whole foods, intermittent fasting, sleep, reducing stress, all of these factors that would protect the really good bacteria that live in our gut. And right at the end of our conversation, you mentioned that you had Teresa's top 10 tips for 2019 for keeping the gut microbiota healthy. And that's what everybody wants to know. So I wonder to start out if we couldn't just go through those top 10 tips as a review, and then we can dive more deeply into some of the compounds in our diet that could be causing more harm. Does that sound like a good plan? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. So let's go through your top 10 tips. The first one that you mentioned was that why we can't go back in time and, and be reborn. We do want to encourage women to have vaginal births and by all means, if you can, breastfeed. Yeah, both are so critical. And it just seems like this is the setting your child up for a future of health or kind of setting them up without as many microbes to fight off the future problems that might be occurring for these little guys as they enter the world. But just being born vaginally, babies inoculated with all those amazing microbes from their mother. And then after they're delivered, that breast milk has, I think I mentioned before, if I didn't, but about 500 different microbes in there that are, again, feeding the digestive system of the infant so that they start out the world and in the world getting kind of their mother's immune system. And it really starts them off on this journey of creating that healthy gut microbiome. Um, because that first three years of their life as they play in the dirt and they're breastfed and they're exposed to other people, they're growing that microbial world. And then about the age of three, it looks like it kind of settles down. So those first three years are critical. to can be born vaginally and 
be breastfed at least a year. It just looks like it's so, so important for setting that child up for a future that's healthier. Right. Um, we see less diabetes, less obesity, even lower blood pressure in patients and people that were born vaginally and breastfed versus their counterparts that may have been C-sectioned and formula fed. Right. And you know, it's so funny, as one dietitian talking to another, it's so great to be able to have these conversations that focus on preventing disease. And if only our policies in our workplaces and our healthcare policies really matched this preventive model, we could have such a healthy society. So not everybody has that best start. So after that, the things that we can do to protect the microbiota or the organisms that are living in our gut and really influencing our health, the second one you had on your list for us was to encourage plant-based diets. And that is certainly the wave of the future. All of the trends that I see now really focus on the importance of plant food, primarily, I'm assuming, because of fiber. Yeah, it does look like those microbes that protect us and they're really anti-inflammatory and they protect us against disease and they create that thick mucosal membrane. Those are all the ones that feed a lot off of these plant fibers. And I know Dr. Knight, he was doing the Human Gut Project, which is a great project if you want to look something up online. And it's all correlational, but one of the things they found was the, the highest predictor of a person's gut microbes being diverse and resilient and rich and thick was the number of plant species they ate per day. And it looked like right around 30 is where we really see this big jump in gut diversity, which the more diverse, the better. It just means you have more defenders for you and more little guys that can help process your food and, and keep you healthy. So 30 seems like a lot, but I've been challenging people to just start out your day and, and count how many different plant species. So if you have a handful of nuts and there's four nuts in there, that's four. If you have a big salad and there's three types of salad and lettuce in there, that would be three. So it, it adds up really quickly, and it's a different way of looking at your diet than I'm a vegetarian or I'm a meat eater or I'm all these different things. Just how much of the good stuff did you eat? So for breakfast, if you had eggs, you didn't get any. For lunch, if you had a gigantic salad, maybe you got 10. And if you're only eating two, maybe your goal would be to eat four. And so no matter where you are, this ideal of getting up to about 30 different plant species a day looks like it really, really helps with us getting that diversity and gut richness, if we can. There are some people that can't. Obviously, you've got colon cancer, irritable bowel, or horrible food allergies. That's not obviously a goal for you. But for prevention, getting those 30, up to 30 species, I think is a fabulous goal to start looking at. You know, after I heard you speak in Washington, I actually started to keep a list on my kitchen table to keep track of how many different varieties. And what it did for me was it gave me an incentive to go ahead and wash the carrot, go ahead and add some carrot shavings to my salad. I know it's going to take a little more time, but go ahead and add a few more vegetables in the crisper to that salad because I'm trying to reach that 30 different species per day. So thank you for that. You are helping me eat a more diverse <laughs> diet too. Excellent. Yeah, I love any of this new stuff. I always say, you know, our brains love new ideas. So eating your vegetables is very boring. Eat fruits, boring. Eat whole grains, boring. But try to eat 30 species a day. That sounds kind of fun. They are looking at the cooked versus raw. We know when we cook a vegetable or cook a fruit, what you're removing some of is you're removing the bacteria that might be stuck on the outside of that plant that's also healthy. But also for just boiling something to oblivion, we're destroying some of that bacteria and breaking down some of that fiber that then 
we can get access to versus our microbes. So one of the guidelines I'd seen out there, and I don't think there's a ton of science behind it, but just a recommendation is about half of your plant species being cooked and half being raw. As you know, you don't have to go all raw or all cooked, but kind of half and half. An apple here, some cooked carrots there, uh, mixing it up a little bit. And then if you really want to be a gram counter, it's that 35 to 50 grams of fiber is what you're kind of shooting for. Again, going up very, very gradually to hit that number. Mm-hmm. And the 50 grams, I remember you saying that that was actually getting up to the therapeutic value. So I love that. If you look at the dietary guidelines, I think that the recommendations for men, for example, are over 30. And I think for women, it's maybe, it's around that area, like 30 grams. But I love the idea of trying to push that up even more and gradually, as you mentioned, so that you can get closer to the therapeutic values. Yeah. And even that 35 to 50 grams is fairly therapeutic. And most of the research that I've looked at, they don't see huge changes if you go from 20 to 25 or 10 to 15. And I think years ago, there was even an article published that said fiber doesn't do anything for us. But when you looked at the study, they were comparing like 10 grams of fiber versus 20. (laughs) And so that's true. That's probably not enough. But once we start getting up to that 35, you really start seeing bigger production of those short chain fatty acids, which we talked about last time that are really helpful and beneficial to the human. So this is great. Yeah. This is really important information. Okay, everybody. So more than 30 different plant species per day and try to get minimum of 35 grams of fiber per day. So this is wonderful advice to really take a preventive turn and influence how we feel. Your third tip was don't be a hostage to the food industry and to learn to cook. I can't think of a better strategy. Rather than choosing a diet, choose to learn how to cook. Yeah, and I think this is true for healthcare professionals too, is that we tell people to go eat healthy and then we don't give them any recipes or guidelines or cooking classes. It's kind of like giving someone a medication but not telling them how to take it. Yeah. So I think it's really important as healthcare professionals that we too are trying to try one new recipe. And if it's really good, share it with your patients when they come in. And I think, too, in our school systems, I wouldn't, wouldn't it be great in kindergarten that kids not learn how to read and write, but they learn how to cook? Because I think that's a, kind of a lost art. And then as these kids grow up, I see them saying they don't know how to boil water, they don't know how to crack an egg, they don't know how to shop for fruits or vegetables. So even if we told them to eat 30 plant species, they may not even know what a different plant species is, let alone how to cook it. So the food industry has done a phenomenal job of convincing us all we don't have time to cook. It's too expensive. It's too complicated. It goes on and on. And one of the resources I absolutely love now is YouTube because you can just type in good eggplant recipe and you'll get like 40 videos showing you how to cook eggplant. Just pick one and try it. You have a, a professional chef right at your fingertips, which is just amazing that we have access to that. But Yeah, I really encourage people to just try, even if it's just one meal a week, and then try to get one meal per day, and then pretty soon it's, you're flip-flopping and saying, I'll only eat one processed meal a week, or go out, you know, twice Mm -hmm. a week, so as time goes on, you can really expand that goal. And I also think it's a wonderful way to spend time with your kids, especially when everybody is so busy, and 
have their heads in screens. You really can't have your head in a screen when you're helping in the kitchen. You've got to have both hands working. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, or you can have them look up the recipe. And yes. Have them be the investigator online for you to find that awesome recipe and then have them shop for it as well, which is, is really fun. So have them be from start to finish, they plan it out. And you'll be amazed. I know we did this the soup pot or the professional soup makers night or something like that. And we just took tons of ingredients and the kids, these were when they were very little, like five, seven <laughs> at that age. Yeah. And they would create their own soup and write down the recipe and they made up a name for it. And I was always amazed how many more vegetables they ate when they were putting it in the soup themselves versus if I had made it. So that was kind of fun with little pots and you each make your own individual recipe and you can do the same thing with pizza. And That is a know. great idea. That's wonderful. Yeah. In addition to being dietitians, we're also parents and we understand the importance. You know, I told my kids that you've got to learn to cook just like you've got to learn to swim, that it is a yeah. life-saving skill. And okay. any of these creative ideas are all really helpful. All right. Yeah. Now, number four of your top 10 tips, I think is really important. It's going to take us a little bit of time, but you say limit microbial assassins and the list is getting larger. What do you yes. mean by a microbial assassin? Yeah, when you start looking at the research, you're seeing more and more evidence of things that can hurt and get rid of very critical, very healthy microbes that are already living in us. And a lot of the theories out there right now is it's not necessarily what microbes are present, but it's what microbes are missing. Mm. And so when you eat something that damages the microbial world or alters it in a way that doesn't support our health, we can say, hey, that's kind of a killer or an assassin of the nice balance that's going on in there. So an example of a microbial assassin, I think, is probably going to get more and more attention as time goes on is the emulsifiers. And these are the things that we add to food to make them creamy and smooth and tasty. They also the example I always use is if you think of ice cream that's partially melted and then you put it back in the refrigerator and it crystallizes and then just tastes horrible, emulsifiers prevent that from happening. Non-dairy creamers or nut milks like almond milk and rice milk, they'll put these emulsifiers in there to give it a nice creamy consistency without the fat. So when they first came out, it seemed like a great additive because you could throw stuff in there and it'd make the texture seem nice and maybe it could be a little less fat in the product. But a lot of them, specifically the two that I've seen the most negative research on is polystorbite 80. And then the other one often isn't even written on the label. It'll say natural fibers sometimes, but if it is, it's carboxyl methyl cellulose. And I think CMC is the other way that they write that on the labels. And the problem with CMC and polysorbate 80 and some of these other emulsifiers is it looks as if they're dissolving the lining of our the nice mucosal membrane of our intestinal wall. So it's kind of destroying the house that the microbes live in. Mm -hmm. So even if you did have 30 plant species and you are cooking your food and you're exercising, you're sleeping, but you got this emulsifier and they're wiping out the house, there's nowhere for them to live. So you can get things like bloating and irritable bowel and inflammation. And so these right now are considered safe by the FDA, but I think it's one that might have a little bit harder time to make it in the future because more and more people are starting to uh, report problems. The other one that you might hear a lot of is carrageenan. Yeah. But there's some people when they eat that, me being one, you did horrible upset stomach and it 
took me a while to pinpoint it. It was in my organic soy creamer, and I didn't even know it was in there. And every morning I have a cup of coffee, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> so I really had a search for that one, and I have noticed more manufacturers taking that one out and putting things like lecithin or cellulose gum or something else. And are All those better? Be, you know, I think there's just less negative publicity on them yet for lack of research. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, lecithin is, is also kind of a natural emulsifier. Like you'll see soy uh, lecithin right. and things. And I just haven't seen the research on that. So I'm really hopeful that they're not as toxic as these polysorbate 80s and DMC, but I just I haven't found enough evidence to support that. So right now, my recommendation on the emulsifiers is just if you're eating less processed foods, you're going to get less emulsifiers. There's exactly. no emulsifiers, just, you know, there's no polysorbate AB in, in natural food. We have to put it in there. Right. And a so. lot of manufacturers have switched from the carrageenan to guar gum. Yeah. Have you seen yep, any research? Gums. Yes, yes. Have you seen any research on those? Yeah, the only thing I've seen on the gums is they definitely can have a, a laxative effect, kind of loose stools for some people. And especially if you're having a lot of it, like say you're drinking a ton of a creamer and your coffee with this in it, it could give you diarrhea. And anytime we see diarrhea, something's been disturbed in that microbial world for you to have diarrhea. So again, I'm just, I wouldn't say any of them are 100% safe, but if you can try to limit yourself on that polysorbate 80 and the, the CMC where we've got the evidence to show that they're pretty tough on our guts. Yeah. Let me take one break and remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with Ms. Teresa Martin. She is a fellow registered dietitian. Her specialty is as a certified diabetes educator and also the role of the microbiota in the prevention of chronic disease. So let's continue on our list. We're at number four. We spoke about stress. We spoke about antibiotics. We spoke about being inactive last week. What we didn't talk about last week was sugar substitutes. Yeah, and this is another one where it seems like at first, what a great idea put something in our food that tastes sweet that doesn't give us calories or the detrimental effects of sugar. But again, we weren't looking at our microbial world when these, a lot of these sugar substitutes came out. So a lot of the research in this area was, to me, very overwhelming, very short periods of time. They've done studies on saccharin and sucralose and phenylalanine. You'll see all of these are aspartame is the other one's name you'll see. And in my studies, within four weeks, they could see that these uh, saccharin, sucralose, and aspartame all caused changes in glycemic control, which is blood sugar control. And so the mice that had the saccharin were the most impacted. You'd see actually their blood sugars were higher than those that had nothing and was higher than those that had sucralose and aspartame. And when they looked a little bit further, it looked like the saccharin actually killed off some of those healthy microbes that help us make the hormones such as GLP-1, which is a gut hormone that regulates insulin release. So mm-hmm. you think of the impact of something so small, you think that's really nothing, but if it's killing off the microbes that then help us have energy balance after a meal, and then when you're looking at the next meal, those microbes aren't there because we killed them off, now you have higher blood sugars. So this is a part where I think, again, things like saccharin may be taken off the market. The more the FDA gets this information and says, wow, here we are trying to protect people from high blood sugars, and this is actually killing off the microbes that could do just that. So 
in human studies, they've had the same thing where they've taken humans and given them a diet soda for a week, and then they measured the diversity of the gut microbes, and within one week, it looked very similar to that of someone who maybe had smoked a cigarette as far as the drop in diversity. So this research to me is it's fairly small studies. We definitely need more to back this up. I think it's the beginning of an awareness of saying, if I bring something to the market and put it in our food supply, it's not just does it cause cancer and acute sickness, but does it hurt the microbes? Yeah. And that might be the third point that the FDA may require. I haven't heard any news yet, but I think <laughs> it might be needed. Right. So, But yeah, right now I'd say if I ranked all the sugar substitutes is try to stay away from the best you can. Just use a little bit of natural sugar here and there if you need it. But the sucralose was probably the worst. And stevia is the one that they're doing the most research on right now to try to see its impact. And the chemical version of the ones we have in the United States look like might be just the same as any other sugar substitute. Wow. I haven't found a lot of research on the plant itself. Like if you just chopped up the leaf and threw it in your tea, what impact does that have on the, micro- the right. microbes? That is so interesting. The other popular kind of sugar substitute are the sugar alcohols. Do they also seem to behave the same way as the aspartames and the saccharin and sucralose? Yeah, they do in the sense they can cause diarrhea, but it looks like they're not quite as damaging as the chemical substitutes. Mm. We just can't digest them. We can't absorb them. And our microbes kind of struggle with them as well. (laughs) So you end up with kind of loose stools. Again, I would rather have just a regular cookie with regular (laughs) sugar in it than a sugar substitute that causes diarrhea or microbial disturbance. So it's always a choice. And I just say, I always say the the less, the better. So if you use a little bit here, like I think chewing gum, a little bit of sugar substitute looks fine. We don't see much GI upset. Not a lot of it gets all the way to the lower intestine, and it prevents cavities. Right. Yeah. Well, it also related to this discussion of sugar substitutes, you very wisely write to limit those refined carbohydrates and added sugars, and you have less than 25 grams of added sugar a day. And that fits right in with the American Heart Association's recommendation for limiting sugar, not so much from a gut microbe perspective, but from a cardiac risk reduction perspective. Yeah, and that's where you really start looking at those high added sugar intake. What is it doing to our microbial world? But it also is causing that rapid release of insulin and inflammation and increased risk of heart attack and stroke. So, yeah, the American Academy of Clinical Endocrinologists, the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, they've all started to recommend less added sugar. And the nice thing now is our labels, as of this year, all have added sugar on the label. You'll see total carbs, you'll see sugar, of which how much of that sugar is added. So sugar in a carrot doesn't really do anything. In fact, it's just fine. It's all bound up in fiber. But the added sugar is what looks like it's processed very, very quickly into our bloodstream. And so that's the one we really want to be careful of. So you can now, you have the tool to count that by just looking at labels. Right. And for people who are confused by the gram method. One of these days, we're going to have added teaspoons on all of our labels rather than grams, but there's four grams of sugar in every teaspoon. So shooting for less than 25 grams of added sugar is the equivalent of six added teaspoons. There are two other points on your microbial assassin list that I want to bring up because 
This also comes at the same time as a newly released report from The Lancet looking at how to eat more sustainably. And you say limit high-fat diets and processed meats. How do those two factors affect the gut microbes? Yeah, again, it's really interesting when you look at meat. And I think that's one of those recommendations around the world that decrease the amount of meat that you're eating, specifically the processed meats. On the microbial world side, there's inside meat and eggs. There's choline in eggs and those L-carnitine in meat. And when those are consumed, we have microbes that process those. And kind of a byproduct of those little microbes processing those two parts of meats and egg, they create a byproduct called TMAO, which again, these long words that I just always kind of laugh at, but the trimethylamine oxide, I could be hacking that one up. But what happens is very high levels of that have been linked to heart attack and stroke, and most recently even to prostate cancer. So it, it looks like a, a very detrimental thing to be floating around in our bloodstream. And knowing that when we eat the, the meats or the eggs, especially the processed meats, you get higher levels of these it seems very logical that that be one thing that's contributing to increased heart attack or stroke. But the real interesting thing is when you feed vegetarians a supplement of, say, L-carnitine, so the thing that should cause TMAO, you don't see it. So it looks as if vegetarians probably don't even have the microbes present to make that awful byproduct. Or if you were to get a vegetarian, they actually did a study where they got vegetarians, vegans, to have red meat. I don't know how much they had to pay them for that, but (laughs) they got them to eat red meat. And same thing, they ate red meat without the rise in TMAO after the meal, which was amazing, meaning that those microbes just weren't present. So this just, I think, solidifies that recommendations we have dietitians have said for years, you know, one to two servings of red meat a month, you know, probably is not going to do much. And the study kind of backs that up. You just don't have enough of the microbes to digest that to make that toxic byproduct. Well, we just have two minutes and your remaining tips (laughs) we discussed last week. I'm quickly just going to run through them. Move every day. Get outside, play in the dirt, reduce stress with any form of, whether it's yoga, meditation, mindfulness, making sure we get adequate sleep. You mentioned caution with regard to probiotics, and you also mentioned to look at our poop. We're going to provide the Bristol stool scale for people so that they can look at their poop and know a little bit about what they're really seeing. But I want to leave a minute for a discussion about probiotics. I know that's not very long, but give me a highlight. Why do we need to be cautious about probiotics? I kind of look at it as like that we just don't know enough of how one specific strain is going to impact that whole global world of microbes in our gut. So it's kind of like looking at a football team and saying, wow, they've got a great quarterback. That's what makes them great. So let's throw... 15 quarterbacks out there and suddenly the football team loses every single time because it's not the quarterback. It's the relationship of the quarterback to the rest of the team. And I don't even know football, but I hope that was a good analogy. Good analogy. But the idea is it's very complex. And so each research there that's looking at this microbial world with Let's see, there's a thousand different species of microbes just in our gut. And so when you're looking at all those different species, we're not sure if you take a whole bunch of one, what does that do to a whole bunch of the other? Mm -hmm. So it is real important that you find specific, strain-specific probiotics that are specific to your problem. Right now, the most research that I see out there is for antibiotic 
have induced diarrhea. And so taking a probiotic along with that antibiotic can really help prevent that prolonged diarrhea. And there is a website, hopefully you'll put that one up there, called the usprobioticguide.com. They seem to be pretty good. They're looking at the evidence. So you could type in something like yeast infection and see if there's any probiotics that might have been shown. They have research to support help alleviate a yeast infection. So they rank them out for you. And then see a dietitian that maybe specializes in this area that could help you out. That sounds great. We'll have to end on that note. I cannot thank you enough. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, I want to thank my professional colleague and friend, Ms. Teresa Martin, fellow registered dietitian and expert in the way we look at chronic disease prevention through a new lens in looking at our gut microbes. Thank you so much, Teresa, for being with me. Yeah, thank you so much. It's always fun. Thank you.